Please be seated, and uh, if you could keep your Bibles open to that page, please. Uh, and if you've lost it, then it's page 1059, page 1059. Uh, John chapter 3, verses 22 to the end. Uh, in your bulletin, uh, there is an outline of the sermon, uh, so it might be helpful to have that open as well. Uh, but most important, John chapter 3, on page 1059. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been speaking to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word uh, as it's been read and sung. Uh, and we pray now, Heavenly Father, that you continue to do that as we uh, consider this passage together. Uh, we pray that um, uh, your Spirit would, would enable me to uh, teach this uh, properly and rightly and uh, in his power. Uh, and may your Spirit work in each one of our hearts. May he open our eyes to see Jesus more clearly uh, and respond to him in the right way. Uh, that he, he would be glorified among us. Uh, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many things that happen in this world that demand a response from us, isn't it? Uh, people act in certain ways and, and we need to respond. Uh, people ask for our allegiance in various matters and, and we need to respond. Or people threaten our positions, whether intentionally or unintentionally, and we need to respond. Uh, sometimes we can fail to respond, but we can ignore things, we can sweep them under the carpet, but, but that itself is a response. Uh, to do nothing sometimes is just as much a decision in the end as to do something. Well, in our passage today, we see how John the Baptist responds to the increasing popularity of Jesus. And we will see why we have to respond to Jesus as well and what that response ought to be. But before we do that, let me remind you of where we're up to in John's Gospel. In the first half of chapter 1, we saw the Word, the light, the Son, was God with God. And He became flesh, He came into this world, the perfect revelation of God to us, the Lord Jesus. And then we saw that John the Baptist was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus' coming. He was the voice in the wilderness that the prophet Isaiah had written about calling, prepare the way for the Lord. And we saw him identifying Jesus when, when he saw him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we saw how some of John's disciples actually left him as a result to follow Jesus. And then they told other people who in turn came to follow Jesus and Jesus' following began to grow. In chapter 2, we saw the visit of Jesus and his disciples to a wedding in Cana in Galilee. And we saw that Jesus turned water into wine when it ran out. And remember, the bridegroom is the one whose job is to provide the wine. And so Jesus showed himself symbolically to be the true bridegroom for God's people. And then we saw him clearing the temple. And then the dispute he had with the Jews after that. And you remember what he said? Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And he was talking of the temple of his body. Jesus is a true temple. The place where we really meet God. And then in chapter 3, first part of chapter 3, we saw last week, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And Jesus taught that we need to be born again if we're to enter the kingdom of God or to be born from above. But that's not something that we can do. Only the Holy Spirit can give us new birth. And then we saw the great promise that many of us are familiar with in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Well, chapter 3 ends with our passage today, and that actually revisits many of the themes that we've looked at in these three chapters. And the first one is that work of John the Baptist. 
This is going to be the last time we meet John the Baptist in this book. He's mentioned again by a couple of characters, but this is the last time we, we actually meet him. And the situation is a time when, when Jesus and John are exercising parallel ministries. You know, Matthew and Mark record the ministry of Jesus from when John was put into prison. And they tell us that after G- John was arrested, Jesus started his ministry up in Galilee, up north. But John wants us to know that this is actually happening beforehand. This is down south. And John and Jesus are both working at the same time. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 22, we see Jesus and his disciples are in the Judean countryside. And he and them are up there, and they are baptizing. And then we see in verse 23 that John is also baptizing at Anon, near Salem, not far from there. And people were coming to be baptized. Now, there was some controversy. We don't know the details of it. We know in verse 25 there's some discussion between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Uh, Exactly what, 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 they're know, what, what they're saying about it, we don't know. But, but somehow or other, John's disciples are, are drawn to the attention. The, their attention is drawn to the fact that, that Jesus and his disciples are not only baptizing people as well, but, but these guys are getting left behind. Uh, and so the result of that is verse 26. that They come to John and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And how does John respond? Does he say, right, well, forget what I said about preparing the way for Jesus. He's, he's the competition now. Let's find some dirt on him and, and hang him out. Right? Or, or let's make up some rumors about him and start, start, start spreading them. Or, or let's just observe his crowd-pulling techniques and legitimately improve our own because, you know, there's not really room for two baptizing groups in the Judean countryside and, and we were here first. No, that's not how John reacts. Look what he says in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. What's he saying? Everything that I have, John says, is, it's, it's by God's grace. It's not been, I've been so good or so clever or whatever it is that I've become the, the prophet to Israel. It's just, this is God's kindness using me. A person can't receive even one thing unless it's given from heaven. And the implication for his disciples is the same for them. Every ministry they have is by God's grace. And the ministry that John and his disciples share together is what God has given them. And their purpose was what? To prepare the way for Christ, isn't it? In verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So it's okay if our ministry goes down from here. It was Never really asked to start with. And brothers and sisters, isn't that a good example for any one of us involved in ministry? And I trust that all of us are involved in ministry in some way or other, aren't we? Because all of us are contributing to building the body. Sometimes we are tempted to think that our ministry is our ministry. And we can become possessive and defensive about it. We might even be tempted to think that our ministry is intrinsically important when really the importance of it is that we are pointing people to Christ. And John here gives the best antidote to that attitude. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given from heaven. Whatever ministry you and I have, whatever role you and I have been given to play among God's people, it is entirely by God's grace. 
Now, the ministry God's given us is, is different from the ministry God gave John. Uh, we are part of the new covenant. We don't prepare the way for Jesus. We work together as a body using all the different gifts that he has given us so that together we are able to proclaim his death and resurrection to the world. But the purpose of ministry is exactly the same. God gave John a ministry for one purpose, to glorify Jesus. And God gives us ministry for one purpose, to glorify Jesus. Jesus is not there to glorify our ministry. Our ministry is there to glorify Jesus. So we mustn't idolize our ministries. It's not, it's not about us. It's about him. Now, some of you may be surprised that we can make an idol out of, out of Christian ministry, but, my friends, the human heart is so sinful that, that we can make an idol out of anything. And I speak to myself as a pastor. I speak to you leaders among God's people here today. I speak to all of us. We mustn't idolize our ministry. Your ministry and mine are not ultimately important in and of themselves. It's okay if our ministry goes down as long as Christ goes up. It's okay if we don't get what we want as long as Christ is obeyed. It's okay if, our, if we or our ministry don't become more prominent as, as long as Christ is glorified. So in our hearts, we must love Christ more than we love our ministry. We serve in our ministries because we love Jesus, who loved us first and not for any other reason. So in the end, when, when all the ministry is gone, it's okay because we have Christ. And it's Christ that we cling to, not our ministry. Uh, when Don Carson was in KL a few years ago, he, he told us an anecdote about uh, this preacher called Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of the greatest preachers of God's word of the mid-20th century. And when he was dying of cancer, one of his friends came and visited him. And, and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones, who had been so active in ministry, so fruitful in the service of the Lord, uh, so influential for the gospel, he could hardly move from his bed to his chair. And his friend asked him, how are you coping with the loss? And, uh, and Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, quoting Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then he added, I am content. You see, it's not so important that what he could do, but that he belongs to Christ. He has a place with him. Brothers and sisters, cling to Christ, not your ministry. And in your ministry, point people to him. And John then gives us an illustration that, that, that shows his role in verse 29. He says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Wouldn't it be terrible to have a wedding where the best man is actively competing with the bridegroom for the attention and affection of the bride? Like, wouldn't that be awful? That cannot be. The best man, the, the bridegroom's friend, is, is there for the bridegroom, not to compete with the bridegroom. The bridegroom finds his joy in this bride, and the, the bridegroom's friend finds his joy in the bridegroom's joy. And so John says at the end of verse 29, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. 
You see, Jesus is the true bridegroom. God's people are his bride. And so Jesus must become more and more important to God's people. Jesus must be the one that God's people are attached to. Jesus must be the one they love above all. And so John says in verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. And once again, John is a great example to Christian leaders. He's not about to compete with the bridegroom for the bride. And as Christian leaders, we must never compete with Jesus for the affection of his people. The church is his bride, not ours. We are here to help the bride be ready for her true husband. We are here to make him the center of her attention and the object of her affections. And if the church loves her bridegroom and is presented beautifully to him, then we have done our job. And as a church, we must remember that as well. It's okay to love your leaders. In fact, I kind of hope that you do. But we must love Christ more. He is our bridegroom. We must make sure our ultimate loyalty is to him, not to anyone else. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and, your, and us as your servants for Christ's sake. Well, verses 31 to 36, the last part of the chapter, seem to be editorial comments from the Apostle John who wrote this book. And they kind of, again, wrap up what we've seen in these first three chapters and show us how we should respond. Remember we saw in chapter 1 that Jesus is God, revealing God. He's the eternal Word made flesh. He is the one, verse 31, who comes from above. John, on the other hand, is just a man. Uh, he is, in the words of verse 31, of the earth. He belongs to the earth. And so in verse 31, we see that Jesus is greater than John. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But it's not just Jesus is bigger than John. The apostle John who writes this, he repeats that first part of the verse, 29, verse 31 and again at the end. He says, he who comes from heaven is above all. He's emphasizing that that Jesus is greater than everyone. And so if anyone were to arise and claim to be greater than Jesus, then, then he would be wrong because Jesus is from above. He's God made flesh. Everyone else is, is from below. So if anyone claimed to be a prophet but, but diminished the glory of Jesus by making him something less than the word made flesh, then, well, then he would be a false prophet, wouldn't he? Every Old Testament prophet pointed forward to Christ. John the Baptist pointed people to Christ. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. But a false prophet would diminish Christ. He might even claim to be greater than Christ. A blasphemy indeed, because he who comes from heaven is above all. Back in chapter 1, we saw the light was coming into the world, but was rejected by the world. Well, in verse 32 of chapter 3, we, we see that again. The one who comes from heaven speaks, but his witness is rejected. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, verse 32, and yet no one receives his testimony. Now, you might be a little bit surprised to read that here because Jesus seems to be doing pretty well. He's getting more followers than, than John the Baptist. But that's only how things seem from a human point of view, isn't it? In actual fact, that may not be all, things may not be truly as they seem 
the actual testimony that Jesus was making, the actual witness, well, seemed to be being rejected. What is this witness? What is this testimony? Well, if you go back to verse 11 of chapter 3, we, we see Jesus using those very same words to Nicodemus. He says in verse 11, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And what was the testimony there? What was the things that Nicodemus couldn't receive? The things we saw last week about the need for the new birth, about the work of the Spirit. And then further on, Jesus continues about things that, 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 that people wouldn't believe. And in verse 14, he talks about that, the fact that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And later on in John's Gospel, we see that is, that's by crucifixion. So that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, Jesus bears witness to the fact that people must be born again to enter God's kingdom, that he would be lifted up to take the punishment for our sins so that people can have eternal life, but people generally didn't believe him. And if you go out and tell your friends today, well, generally people won't believe. But if you do believe, then Jesus says, well, you're actually believing God. Verse 33, whoever receives his testimony, the testimony of Jesus, sets his seal to this, that God is true. Because what Jesus says, God says. For verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father gives the Spirit to the Son in a full, absolute, unlimited way. And so when the Son speaks, he speaks for the Father. We must respond to him. Verse 35 says that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. There is nothing that belongs to the Father and not to the Son. Except, of course, his fatherhood of the Son. The words are given, the authority is given, the glory is given, everything is given. So deep is the eternal union between Father and Son that the Son shares everything that belongs to the Father. Even the Spirit himself, completely. And so to relate to the Son is to relate to the Father. You cannot relate to the Father without relating through the Son. How you respond to the Son is how you respond to the Father. How you treat the Son is how you treat the Father. If you listen to Jesus, you're listening to the Father. If you reject Jesus, you're rejecting the Father. And so John says in verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. God's wrath is not something we, we like to talk about in, in polite company. It's, maybe it's because human anger is often sinful and uncontrolled and selfish and lashing out, but, but God's wrath is not like that. God's wrath is just. It is measured, but it's very real. All of us have insulted the holy God by not treating him properly. All of us deserve his wrath. And unless something happens to, to save us from it, then in the words of verse 36, it remains on us. It's there. We mustn't minimize God's wrath. If we, if we minimize God's wrath, then we, then we say our offense against God is not really as big as it is. And that, that minimizes God's holiness. And not only that, it minimizes God's love because the death of Jesus, God the Son, took the wrath on our behalf. And that shows us how much God loves us. But if we, we minimize God's wrath, we make the sacrifice of Jesus not as big as it actually is. And, and we minimize God's love. 
God's wrath is real, but, but God's love is real. And so God gives us that way of escape. Jesus died to take God's wrath for us so that we can have confidence that God is not angry with us anymore if we trust in Jesus. If we trust in Jesus, we can share that love and life, that eternal life that God has that, that God offers us through His Son and share that love and life that God has given His Son. We can be caught up in the joy and delight of the Trinity for all eternity. The way to do that is, the only way is through the Son. Look at the verdict again in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you believe in the Son? Do you believe that Jesus is God made flesh? Do you believe that He is the one who has come from heaven and He is above all? That He died on the cross for you to pay the punishment for your sin, to avert the wrath of God from you, and that He rose again from the dead and that, that you can trust Him to be your way, the only way of access to the Father? Will you obey him when he calls you to come and follow him? Or will you remain under the wrath of God? May I urge you, may I plead with you, respond rightly to Jesus. Believe in the Son. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. What a wonderful promise that is. Has eternal life. What great assurance we can have. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have sent your son into this world. We thank you that he perfectly reveals you, that he speaks for you, and that he came to save us. We believe that he who is from above is above all, and that you have given all things into his hand. We believe that he died for our sins and rose again to save us from the wrath that we deserve. Please help us to keep trusting in him. And may each one of us here be people who respond rightly to Jesus and have eternal life. We thank you too for your servants in every age who have pointed your people to Jesus. We thank you for those who, like John, have faithfully served Jesus. And we pray that we as Christ Church would not only be grateful for them, but that we would always love him more than we love them. And we pray that in our ministry here at St. Mary's, Christ would be the one who is glorified. 
May we never see ministry as our ministry, but the privilege that we have by your grace to serve others. Please forgive us for the times that we have idolized our ministry. May we love Jesus more than we love our ministry. And may we cling to him more than we cling to our service of him. And may each of us find our joy in seeing Jesus exalted. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen.